Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everybody, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Uh, my name is Ben Smith. Allow me to introduce my co-host, the Ted Williams, to my Bud Levitt, Curtis Worcester. How are you doing today, Curtis? I'm doing well, Ben. Doing well. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, well, um, I'll say, um, again, for those, that, uh, of course, Mainers and watching TV over the years, you always saw Ted Williams and Bud Levitt. Bud Levitt was the local sports writer who befriended Ted Williams. Yep. And, of course, they did all their fishing and stuff, but in nissen bread commercials and they were the <laughs> they were the duo that's so right pretty cool pretty cool from uh from red sox fans nation over here well speaking of red sox right one thing that we know we want to get into around uh the state of maine especially was retirement state of maine was was around gambling mm. right so far we have two retail casinos in maine yep one in Oxford and one in Bangor. Mm -hmm. And we know sports betting is getting closer and closer to becoming available, right? Well, I know yeah. we got the apps and things where you can do our fantasy things and you can play for money sure. there. Yep. But sports betting is pretty close. I know there's been a few roadblocks along the way, such as there's a 2019 veto by Governor Janet Mills and the Senate blocking the bill the following year. Yep. And that all changed when on April 19th of 22, an amended version of LB 585 passed by the Senate. Yep. And that was followed by a signature from uh, Janet, Governor Janet Mills coming on May 2nd. Yeah. So now we really await this potential launch of sports betting in the Pine Tree State. Mm -hmm. So soon enough, the our area could be home to such sports betting operators such as BetMGM Sportsbook, DraftKings Sportsbook, FanDuel, Caesars, yeah. you know, those names that we, I think we all associate with gambling, especially like big, uh, like Las Vegas, Atlantic City types. Sure. So some analysts really expect that sports betting could be joining the gambling scene in Maine in 2023, right? So uh, probably as you're listening to this, this might be, uh, this might be hitting here. So especially Maine, some cold, harsh winters. Lack of entertainment options. We're sitting at home. We're watching sports, mm -hmm. cheering on our favorite teams. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see where there's some potential for us to start partaking and, you know, getting interested and getting involved. But how do I know how or how do I know if I'm developing an addiction to something like gambling that I can't control? Right. How much is too much? And especially there's a lot of stigma around it, right? So this can be especially pro problematic for retirees that feel like they have money to gamble, but mm -hmm. might be living beyond their means to allow for their funds to last for the entirety of their retirements. So that is what this show is about. That's right. And obviously, like we do with all of our shows, Ben, we like to have guests on. So our next guest is a graduate of the University of Washington um, and eventually went on to work for himself as a general contractor. Uh, he spent many years building a solid reputation and was widely respected as a business owner and professional. So what people didn't know about our guest um, was that he also spent 15 years as a raging gambling addict, losing millions and nearly destroyed his family. He resorted to criminal acts to feed his addiction and ultimately ended up in jail. He did leave jail in 2015 and has devoted uh, his life ever since to helping those who suffer in their addiction. So he spent many years uh, taking from people to feed his addiction, but now is giving back. And that is such an amazing thing. 
So our guest is also a TEDx speaker uh, currently presenting to college student athletes across the country. He's been fortunate enough to guest on over 200 podcasts worldwide. So by day, he's also a detail-oriented landscape architect with a strong background in design-build landscape construction, supported by over 20 years in the field of landscaping and research. So with that, uh, please join me in welcoming Patrick Chester to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Patrick, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Hey, it's great to be here, Curtis, and, and thanks to, to both you and, and Ben for having me on and, and, and shedding light on as we can get into what to me is a major issue and a major mm-hmm. problem in, in this country today. Sure. Yeah. And Patrick, I know it's something where obviously there's a lot of reach, right? With this issue, right? There's, it's impacting families, it's impacting money, it's impacting relationships. You know, there's lots of things happening there, but I, and I know we want to talk about really our theme of really identifying of how do I know if I have a gambling addiction, but also overcoming that, right? And kind of going through that kind of as a, as a theme today. But I, with all of our guests, we always want to get to know you and your story a little bit. And I think especially here, Patrick, with your particular story, I think it's really helpful to understand where you came from and how you found yourself kind of leading into this general con- uh, contractor architect uh, role here. Sure. Yeah. And so I grew up, you know, in a you know, fairly common household. My parents divorced when I was young, you know, which is not that uncommon. And so my mom raised my sister and I and worked three jobs to put food on our table and get me into good schools. And and I was able to, I got good grades and went to good schools and was fairly well educated. Like you mentioned earlier, I graduated from the University of Washington in landscape architecture. And so as I transitioned out of college into my professional life, that's kind of all I knew, you know. And so, as you mentioned earlier, but behind the scenes, I had this this sickness going on inside of me that nobody really knew about. So I'm juggling my new profession and building up my business and establishing relationships with with people throughout the community and gaining their trust. And all the while, I've got this, like I said, raging gambling addiction going on behind the scenes. But you know, as far as the, my profession goes, that's that's like I said earlier, kind of all I knew. And so that's what I studied in college, and that's what I went on to do. And Like I mentioned, you know, I spent many years establishing a reputation and the respect from people in the community. Yeah. Well, and and you just touched on it, Patrick, and I want to, I want to get into that now, kind of that behind the scenes, um, life that you had as well there. So I just want to ask when and how did your gambling addiction start? And then, you know, maybe kind of in depth talk about how, how it really developed and what ended up being kind of your rock bottom. Sure. So, you know, I can, I can go back to my, my, my early days as a child, uh, looking back now with some clarity. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up, my father, who was fairly non-existent, but when, when we were together with my dad, it was in, in many instances, it was, it was with him and his friends and they were gambling and they were drinking. And I saw this as a kid, mm-hmm. never thinking that that was, a, could be a problem or it was dangerous. It was always um, portrayed as something that was fun and harmless. And so, yeah. As I got into my college years, like many kids in college, uh, you know, we started playing cards and poker and, and, and going to, you know, casinos and that sort of thing. And, and not really, you know, just for fun. It yeah. wasn't, you know, I may go with 50 bucks or a hundred bucks, you know, in my college days, I didn't have a lot of money. So, mm-hmm. you know, but what I noticed back then was that if I went with three or four friends to a casino and I lost a hundred bucks, that wasn't enough. I was, I would, would then ask friends to borrow money. I couldn't just shut it off. And so, those were early warning signs in my own head that I that I should have recognized and I didn't. 
didn't do anything about it. And so as we got, as I got into my twenties and was working for myself, my late twenties, you know, it was around actually around 2001. Is, if I look back, it's 2001. I was a sports better. And so I won a parlay. I hit a, a three team parlay and won $900. Yeah. And that was a huge rush for me. And so that was kind of the beginning as I look back on it now. And then through the early 2000s and as I got into my thirties and late thirties, early forties, I started making decisions that were out of character to feed my addiction. If I didn't have the money, I was, I started doing things to get money, things that were, that were not, again, not ethical and, and way out of balance, way out of character for me. And so we can kind of get into it uh, here in a minute, mm-hmm. what eventually led to my rock bottom. But those were kind of the early days um, where I really started to see, know in my head that I was making bad decisions. So, so Patrick, I think with that, right, is so here you are, you know, you need money to then feed this addiction, right? You need to, you need to kind of continue to get that rush and to get that feeling of trying to win, right? And I could see where also from a spiral perspective is I need money to then make up maybe losses, right? But can you talk about, well, obviously you talk about making unethical decisions. How do you know where your rock bottom was, right? And how did you then go, okay, I'm now, I'm now making really bad decisions and I need to get some sort of help or treatment and kind of how, how does, how did that kind of decision play out? So what happened was I was, I was again, as a general contractor and, and, and writing up contracts with clients for $50,000, $100,000 projects. I'm now in a position where I'm accepting 30, 40, $50,000 deposit checks from clients. Okay. Mm-hmm. We would sign a contract. They trusted me. They would hand over a $40,000 check. For example, as a raging gambling addict, that was a challenge. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. I, I'm now in this, in what I, how I, I characterize it as a game of chase. Okay. I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Nobody knows it. And so when I would accept a $40,000 check, for example, I would take 20,000 of that for myself and my own gambling problems. I would pay off some gambling debts and then I would gamble with the rest of it. In my mind, thinking not that I'm taking somebody's money in my mind, I'm just, I'm just rationalizing this as, well, I'm just borrowing this money now, but I'm going to double it or triple it. Yeah pay this guy, get this job done. He'll never know the difference. Inevitably, what would always happen was I would get two or three or four weeks into this project, run out of money. My client would look at me and ask me, hey, where's the rest of the money? Why can't we finish this job? And I had to come up with excuse after excuse after excuse to deflect and delay and try and put this client off until I, in my mind, could get the money, win the money somewhere else, come back. So you can see the the cycle that, that I'm in, right? And so... And now I would go from one client to another client and do the same thing. And I had at one point 10 to 15 clients that I owed combined over $300,000 to. And they're all coming after me and they're all asking me questions. And now after a while, they start to recognize the pattern. And then they go to the state, they go to law enforcement, the prosecutors get involved, you know, and then that. And this was all going on while my wife had no idea. My wife and I got married in 2006. We're now about 2010, 2011, 2012 when this is all happening. My wife has no idea. My friends have no idea. So not only am I doing all these things, I'm hiding it as well. And so walking through the door each night after living a lie for the entire day and coming up with lies to my wife and everybody else was, you know, a soul crushing uh, thing to have to go through every day of my life. And that's that, but that's the position I had put myself in. And so as we can get into a, a you know, about two years later um, is when it all came crashing down. So, so Patrick, can you talk about then that moment, right? So how did it come crashing down for you? What was, what was the the moment where all of a sudden you're like, 
okay, this is it. Uh, I've, I've now, I'm in a, I'm in a pickle that I probably can't get out of at this point. And, and kind of how did, how did that, again, I want to, want to hear about kind of that moment to then to where you are today would be really, really pretty awesome. Yeah. So 2013, I was charged with two counts of first degree theft. Okay. And so this was, it, it related to a couple of my clients who had filed complaints with the state and then ultimately law enforcement got involved. Like I said, they investigated and I was charged with two counts of first degree theft. And I'll just on a side note, had I been charged with all of the crimes I did commit during those years, I would have been sent off to prison for years. I wasn't. I was charged with two counts of theft, which was uh, still a, a big deal. That was 2013. And so that legal process takes a while to play out. It took about, well, it wasn't until late 2014 where I was actually, actually early 2015 where I was sentenced. But before that, the moment that my rock bottom moment was in November of 2014, I was no longer able to work. I didn't have many friends left because I had alienated all my friends, asking them to borrow money, making poor choices to feed my addiction. Nobody knew what was going on. They just knew that I was, I was acting in a way that was, was not good and they didn't want to be around me. And so mm-hmm. November of 2014, I'll never forget it. I took $9.50 from my son's piggy bank one day. He was four years old at the time and I had no money. I had nothing. So I took $9.50 out of my son's piggy bank. And I remember it was that day. Later that afternoon, I would sit in my car and stare out the window and I was just crying. And I had no more answers. I had come to the conclusion that I was no longer of any use or value to my wife or son and that it was better if I, it would be best for everybody if I just ended my life. And so then I started planning on how I was going to do that because I wanted to make it look like an accident so that somehow maybe my wife could collect on the life insurance. You know, but I, so I was, I was planning state, the planning stages of ending my own life. And then it was two months later, where it was, it was actually late January of 2015. And I finally had come to the conclusion that I was going to end my life when I got, we, but my wife and I were taking one last trip. We went down to Arizona to the Super Bowl, uh, to watch our team, the, our team, which was the Seattle Seahawks play the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. We had planned this for a while and we went down there. And before we went, uh, we also went with my wife's sister and her brother-in-law. I had convinced my brother-in-law to loan me $10,000. I had come up with some sort of a story why I needed it. I think I told him it was it was for a part of a down payment for a house. He believed me. What it was, was I was, I was going to make one last bet on the Super Bowl while we were down there. And I didn't tell him that. But he, he wired 10, 10 grand over my bank account. I cashed it out. We're down at the Super Bowl. I put $10,000 on my team, the Seahawks, to win that game. And we're sitting there watching. I'm sitting there with my wife, my brother-in-law, and my sister's, my, my wife's sister. Next to my brother-in-law, the Seahawks are about to win the game. They're on the one-yard line. All they have to do is hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch. He's going to go into the end zone, and we're going to win the game. I'm going to win that ten grand. And yeah, as you may, may remember, mm-hmm. they didn't do that. Russell Wilson drops back, throws the ball in the end zone, intercepted, game over. Mm-hmm. So not only did I lose my final bet. It wasn't even my money again. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to my, my brother-in-law. He has no idea that I just took 10 grand from him and lost it on a football game. Mm-hmm. And it was two days later, we were back home and somehow while we were gone, my wife's husband, my wife's dad, her father found out that I had some sort of gambling problem going on. He didn't have any idea to the extent or scope. And he got a hold of my wife two days after we got home and explained to her what he knew. 
within 48 hours, they arranged an intervention for me and basically put it right in front of me said, hey, you have a chance to go off to treatment right now to a gambling specific treatment facility and get help. Mm-hmm. Again, not knowing they had no idea of what I had actually done. They just knew I had a problem. And I accepted that. And I was on a plane less than 24 hours later to a treatment facility in Minnesota that dealt specifically with gambling addiction. And that was the turning point for me. Mm. Patrick, thank you to start. Just thank you so much for sharing that story and your experiences. I know that may be tough to talk about certain parts or all of that. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think kind of as we move on in this show, I think uh, that's very important, right? We've now heard your story in great detail. You've kind of led us into as you've gone through those certain stages of your past. I want to kind of zoom out now a little bit as we talk about hopefully trying to identify and overcome gambling addictions, you know, as whether it's people around us or ourselves. Can we just start by kind of getting your definition of kind of what is a gambling addiction and problem versus maybe just that kind of recreational gambling going to a casino with $50 here and there? Kind of where where does that line get drawn and, and eventually crossed? Great question. Yeah, there are a few different lines that get crossed. And so number one, if, if you know, and there is there is such a thing as responsible gambling, and that's what I'm all about. And so I'm never, I've never been one to say, well, if you gamble, you're, you're evil and you're doing wrong. No, that's not it at all. It's, it's, let's be responsible about it. And so if, if, if you budget a certain amount to gamble with mm-hmm. and you stick to that budget, that's, that's great. When you start to deviate, when you start to, uh, exceed that and then you lose what you had set aside to gamble with and it, well, maybe I could just borrow some money from this account or take some money from that account. Those are the beginning signs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those are the early signs of an issue. If you, you're not, you're not controlling it. You're not being responsible. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, when you start to uh, make up stories or tell lies to your wife or your spouse or your friends or whatever, your family about where you were, whether you were at a casino or, or what you did with that money. Again, another warning sign right there. You're, you're going, you're going beyond the responsible gambling. I mean, it's, it's no longer responsible because you're doing things that are, that are not right. You're lying and you're deflecting. And so those are the, those are the, probably the, the, the first telltale signs of a gambling addiction mm-hmm. and problem gambling. And that's where you need to, to seek help or talk to somebody about it before it gets to a point where I got to. Right. I mean, there were many junctures along the way for me where I could have just owned it and gone to somebody, but I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to talk to. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. And we, and, and again, it's not like drug addiction or alcoholism where you can see it physically on somebody. And so it's so easy. It's easily hidden and people don't pick up on it. That's another thing maybe we can touch on is for family members and friends, things to watch out for. Mm. Well, I think Patrick, that's a really great point. Cause I think, you know, as you said, kind of spotting it in yourself, right. And I think sometimes from an addiction perspective, you might be able to notice, Hey, yeah, I'm kind of starting to cross some lines here a little bit, but again, I'm addicted, right. Is I, I know I can win and I can, I know I can kind of win back any losses. And it's just, it's this feeling of maybe this confidence that I have that is maybe the addiction talking here that, I know I'm crossing the line, but it's going to get better because of these things. So can you talk a little bit about, obviously, if that's what we're spotting in ourselves, and maybe we're able to control it, maybe we're not, but from from others, right? And loved ones, right? And I think that's that's something to kind of think about is, here's maybe your father-in-law, and here's your wife, and here's people around you, and you, you you're hiding things, right? You're lying, you're deflecting. How can how can 
we, as maybe we have a loved one that, that is in that situation, how can we help them? How can we identify signs that we, we think there might be an issue? Because again, we don't want to just say, let's, we don't want to start being accusatory. Geez, Patrick, you, you, you were, you were lying and you were at the casino. You're like, geez, I literally spent 20 bucks, right? Is like, how do I, I don't want to then falsely accuse. So you want to have confidence that, geez, there are some things that are worrying us. How, how do you kind of identify those signs and maybe outside people that you love? Right. So that's, you know, great, great, great question. So I'll just take you back to, to, to my wife and, and, and that dynamic here for a second. We've had a lot of time now. We're seven and a half years into this new life now, but she looks back on our time during those years. And again, she couldn't see it physically on me, but there were a lot of red flags and a lot of warning signs that she missed. And she looks back on that now and and, and shakes her head and says, wow, I wish I would have just done something. And so what that is, is it's inconsistencies, it's lies, it's, you know, and oftentimes if you're the spouse or the, the, the living with somebody, your tendency is to want to believe them. They may be telling you, I told my wife, I mean, I can't tell you how many stories and lies and scenarios I came up with almost in an effort to just confuse her and spin her in circles to the point where she just had no idea what to do. But your tendency is to want to believe them, right? Whereas on the outside, if you're a friend or maybe a family member that's not quite as close, it's easier to recognize, hey, whoa, that's that's not right. You know, so what should, what needs to happen is for the family member, it's it's inconsistencies, financial inconsistencies, lies, stories, things that don't add up. You don't mm-hmm. see, you don't, you know, you just don't see it physically. But it's all of those things. Like my wife trusted me to handle the bills, and she would get calls from from somebody because a bill didn't get paid, or and it's all all money related. It's all financial with gambling addiction. So it's a lot of it is revolves around money, clearly. So those are things to watch out for. And isolation, that's another thing we do as gambling addicts is we tend to isolate. You know, we don't want to be part of, I mean, gambling had to me, sports betting had become all consuming. Uh, it was more important than sitting down with my family to dinner. It was more important than, than going to work. It was, it was all I cared about. And so it's the isolation. It's the desperation. It's the lies. It's the inconsistencies. So if you see any of those things and you know or think that maybe your spouse or friend might be gambling, if you can just sit down with them and lay it all on the table, that's the best thing to do. Hey, look, this is not adding up. Why are these things happening? Those are, those are, those are the, the, the early signs and the, and the, and the things that can be done or recognized early on to try and address it and, and head it off before it gets out of control. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so again, from, from our end, Patrick, I know yep. you've been traveling the country and talking to many student athletes about gambling addiction. You know, it's estimated that 750,000 teens to young adults, right? Age 14 to 21 suffer from gambling addiction. And more than 80% of, of course, adults are gambling annually, as we talk about, right? It's every day, according to um, an October 22 article we read on earthweb.com from Jason Wise. So if teens and young adults are more prevalent to develop the habits, right? As you kind of said, that was kind of the start in college and you you go on a gambling trip and, you know, it starts there a little bit. But what about, again, our population that we work with a lot, right? And the, this name of our show is Retirement Success in Maine. You know, what about pre-retirees or retirement groups that have more assets and earning power to gamble bigger amounts? Because I could see where from maybe a rural state, you know, not traditionally just had a lot of access to gambling, right? And and maybe at the same time is, look, um, I've compartmentalized and this money that is I had to put away, I really couldn't access. It was in my company 401k account. I couldn't get it out. 
right? But all of a sudden now I get a pot of money and this is also the last me the rest of my life. But I could see where that access to money plus access to gambling, you know, whether it be in our state to casinos or there's an app on my phone I can download and all of a sudden I can start making some bets and and just, you know, transferring some money. So I guess my question, is it uncommon to develop this habit later in life? And again, especially as we have more and more availability to gambling over time. Sure. Yeah. And so you kind of, you touched on it and most addictions begin in the teenage years, right? I mean, high school, college, that's when most addictions start. But having said that, I've come across and I've met with many people that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s that have plenty of money and they're just bored or they're retired. And I, in fact, I, I, I went to uh, just a quick story. I went to treatment with a gentleman who he was actually back. I think he lived in Massachusetts, sent his two sons that he and his wife were had millions in the bank, sent their two sons off to Ivy League schools, ended up getting great jobs. He had plenty of money. He had just retired. I think maybe he was around 60 years old. All of a sudden, he had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. He started day trading just as a hobby. And within four months had blown through his entire savings. He and his wife had spent their, their, their whole life, their, their, their careers building up this money to, to retire on. It's gone. It was gone mm. in four months. And so it's, it, it can happen late. I guess what I'm saying is it can happen later in life too. It's people get bored and they have money. And like you said, and, and we can access all of these. We have all of these apps on our phone. And now in our state, Washington state, where I live, sports betting is, is legal. We have state sponsored sports betting here. And I think it's legal now in 32 or 33 states. And yeah. Maine is at some point probably going to, to be one of them, yeah. you know, and so it's so much more accessible now. And without the education and the awareness, young people especially don't recognize what can happen. Like you said, you know, you're on your phone and, and you've got money in this account or this account or, well, well, I'll just place a small bet. Well, if you if you start to develop an addiction, there's no shutoff valve there. Mm-hmm. You can rattle through, you can max out credit cards in a matter of hours. You can, you know, if, if you just don't, if you're not able to stop. And so, and it's just so accessible. And we're just throwing this at this young generation without any sort of education or prevention and very few treatment options for, for, for the gambling addict. And so we're throwing this at society and just expecting that it's all going to be fine. Well, it's not, you know, mm-hmm. we just, we need, we need uh, education and we need to raise awareness about this because like you said, it's just so easy and so accessible to do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I'll just kind of add, I know, I mean, I, I think any one of us could take time like scrolling through any social media app and you'll see sports betting kind of romanticized by these blogging companies, the casino companies. So, I mean, it, it they certainly there certainly is a play there. I want to maybe ask you to expand a little bit or if there's anything else you want to add, but just kind of what do you see as kind of the major risk factors for compulsive gambling? And, and again, who is more likely to develop that compulsive gambling issue? Well, for me, I was... I grew up playing sports. I was, I played sports all through high school and athletes in part because they have their, the competitive nature of the athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, well, from what I've noticed and what I experienced tend to be, uh, a little bit more prone and susceptible to the, to this, mm-hmm. you know, but again, it's not, it's also people that grow up in an environment where gambling is all around them. 
like I did. I grew up in an environment where, you know, I saw my dad doing it and nobody, he never told me about what can happen. Yeah. You know, if you grow up around that without any sort of, of, of education or knowledge about what can happen, like we do with drugs and alcohol, we talk to our kids about the dangers of that, right? Mm. Nobody talks to their kids about the dangers of gambling. And so again, people that grow up in that environment are, are, are much more prone to falling into that addiction, but, but also too, addiction runs in, runs in families, right? So if you, you may have a, a parent or a, a sibling that has an alcohol or alcohol addiction or drug addiction or is an alcoholic, that could, that could cross over to gambling, you know, and, and we're just, if, if it runs in our family, addiction runs in our family, we're more susceptible to, to, to falling into that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I think, uh, or we think, right, there's obviously a, a, a bad stigma here about gambling addiction and, and statistics uh, also reflect that. So only 1% of Americans are estimated to have a severe gambling problem. But as we know, since few people seek treatment for gambling addiction, it's really tough to know one if that's an accurate number or to how to get an accurate number. So what do you think can be done to decrease the stigma about gambling addiction? Well, this is a really good question. One, the, the first thing is, you know, many people will don't even recognize it's an addiction for one, right? I mean, they can look at a gambling addict and the choices we make as gambling addicts and just say, well, that that's just a bad person. Mm-hmm. Just stop doing it. You know, it's wrong. Just stop doing it. Yeah. Well, we need to 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 make people aware and educate them on on what gambling addiction is. I mean, the, the process in the brain is no different than a heroin addict. Um, it's, 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 you know, a dopamine rush to a heroin addict is the same as, as it is to a gambling addict. They may show some physical signs, but it's all in the brain. That's where addiction is. I mean, it's, it's not, we're not making these choices because we, we want to, or we're, we're bad people. We're making these choices because we're sick. And we, the, the sooner we recognize that the gambling addiction is a real addiction, the better off we'll be. You know, I'll just give you an example over in the UK. Uh, they've been betting legally on sports now for years. Okay. And they are just now starting to see the ramifications of that. The, the, the younger generation that started betting on sports 10 to 15 years ago over there are dying now. They're, they're committing suicide. They're in prison. Their, their lives are a mess. And that's what's going to happen here. And then, you know, over there, there's, you know, what, 28 or 30 million people. We have over 300 million people in the States. Yeah. And now we're just throwing this at our kids as if they don't need any sort of education surrounding it. And what we're going to see five, 10, 15 years down the road, if we don't recognize this is staggering because we're, we're going to, we're going to lose friends. We're going to lose family members because they fall into this addiction. And it's, we just, it's, it's about recognizing what it is and, and, and appreciating the fact that these are actually really good people that are sick and, and, and we need to come up with some better treatment options as well. So Patrick, I, I think you're you're bringing up some really really powerful things. And I know in a previous episode we talked to um, one of our guests was uh, was a mother from California in Sacramento, and her son Kevin uh, became addicted to heroin and meth. And um, and so a lot of what you're saying about addiction is kind of ringing true from our episode with her. Right? Is here's things that and as she kind of said is look, I would do anything, anything for my son. And she goes, and of course, a lot of people were trying to do the tough love thing, right? Just, just kick him out and he'll, he'll realize one day that he's wrong and he'll hit his rock bottom and then he'll come back and it'll be fine. Right. So tough love the heck out of that and, and he'll solve it. And in her, her statement back to us was, you know, what I, what I learned and what I, I know my son 
was rock bottom for my son was was death, right? So I, I know and kind of well, you were kind of talking about that too personally was hey, I I I was planning this out, right? Is I'm 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 gonna end myself here, right? Is I I I'm better off not being here to solve this for my family and my loved ones. And and I, I know that as you just talked about, this big wave of of a theme and accessibility and availability of gambling is coming. So almost you kind of see what happened, as you said, with, um, you know, it, it's overseas happening. You kind of almost see it where geez, we've already tested our society with pain medication. We take it away and then they go seeking other ways to replace pain medication. So you can kind of see this wave of addiction that's happening. And when you say, all right, Right now, we have 23 million Americans that have incurred unnecessary debt due to gambling. And the statistics we found show that the average amount loss is $55,000. This isn't like, okay, we 23 million people and they're a thousand bucks, right? And they can, you know, they can put another week of work in and make that up. $55,000, which as you said, you're maxing out credit cards at 30% interest. Yeah. That's that's pretty hard to overcome. So I can see where it's spiraling. I'm spiraling. I need to. I'm going to get the big win to then pay off. So I have to pay. I have to win. I have to win bigger amounts hmm. to then get myself out of the bigger hole. So I guess my my question here is: We have a loved one that we see spiraling, right? And I know from our population, they have the retirement assets. They see somebody spiraling. They see somebody like where you are is or whereas, hey, I need help and I am in a lot of trouble. They have the ticket, right? They have the money, right? These are people that say, I love you, Patrick, more than anybody in this world. And if I could solve this for you right now, I will write you the check. I will clear the deck. We will start over and you're going to be better off. Yeah, is that is that is that a good solution in this case? Wow, that's there's a lot to that. Um, wow, yeah. So <laughs> there's 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 a way to do this in, in, in a right way. And I mean, for me, I'll give give you an example. You know, I left jail in June of 2015 with a clear head. I had been to treatment. I had just spent months in jail. I walked out of that place telling myself that my life would be forever different and I was never going to go down that road again. What I didn't recognize or, or appreciate at the time was I had over a million dollars in debt. I had a, I owed the, the, I had gotten help and, and, and my head was clear for the first time in years, but I still had a million dollars in debt that I had to pay off. Like that's not, that's the difference, you know, I mean, not to compare addictions, but for a heroin addict or a meth addict or an alcoholic, they can go to treatment and get help, but they're not faced with a million dollars in debt or $55,000 in debt when they're walking out of a treatment center. Mm. And so that's for the gambling addict. That's the, that's the issue. Okay. It becomes overwhelming. We, we can't see a way out of that. And so for the family member or the friend that wants to help, yeah, I mean, the tough love approach is good to a certain extent, but you you also need to be there if you can for that person and, and support them in, in their recovery and let them know that you are there. Like, that's the other thing. Like, we leave, we go off to treatment and, and come back into society again. It's like, is anybody going to be with me? Am I on my own? And to have support, to know that you have people on your side, that's that's how I was able to get through the first few years of my recovery. 
because I had alienated all my, I didn't have any friends left. I had my wife and I had some family members and I lost a lot of family members through this process too, that I still haven't gotten back. And that's just part of the deal, mm-hmm. you know, but to have people that are there for you is what the addict needs early on in their recovery. You know, and as far as like bailouts and that sort of thing, you know, I had family members step up. My wife's family stepped up and paid off a bunch of stuff that I owed, but I had to pay them back. Right. Okay. So that took the heat off of me legally. And, you know, well, in fact, my family was in danger and I was in danger too, because I had people coming after me that wanted to do serious harm to me. Mm. So that was gone. They, I, they helped alleviate that problem, but then I had to pay my family back for bailing me out. And so that's the thing. Like, yes, I'm here to help you, but there's also, you need to be accountable. And, and that was a big thing with me was accountability. Having support was amazing. But I also needed to learn accountability because I had lost all of that through the through the years of addiction. And so there's kind of a fine line there. But bailing out and just walking away from somebody and, and saying, nope, I'm done. That's not necessarily the right approach. Yeah. And, and Patrick, I, I think that that's something where, again, I, I, from what we've witnessed, right, is, of course, generationally. I, I think if this was happening 30, 40 years ago. Without that generation that were the parents, I think that was the almost uh, talk about the tough love, right? Is I, they, they probably could not really even understand coming from that depression era of I didn't have that money and that we had to build ourselves up by bootstraps and we, we know what it was like to lose everything. And here's what we had to do to overcome it generationally. I, a generation removed from that, it feels like there's a there's beginning to be a lot more understanding, and that sentiment that's passed forward a little bit is starting to go uh, that that we all need an advocate network, right? And I know that's something that uh, Barbara Legere talked about with us about with her son Kevin was I needed to be his advocate. I I would give anything for him, but the thing he really needed from me was he needed me to because again talk to healthcare providers, yeah. figure out insurance figure out, you um, get paying things off financially in the financial system, which I don't understand, right? Because maybe you're not uh, uh, figuring out how to consolidate debt and what the best way to do this is. So I could see where, Patrick, in your situation, having a team around you that could help you and help kind of solve the problem together versus if you were on your own, if everybody had just cast you out, how lonely you'd be in terms of trying to heal yourself from this addiction, but then also trying to heal the financial relationship pain, all of that all at once, all by yourself. So can you talk a little bit about what you see then from a recovery perspective? How important are you seeing the um, advocacy network around somebody as a key to their recovery? Yeah. And and, and you just touched on it. Ben. It's, it's what I call the old school approach. I grew up with that. You know, I grew up in a family where uh, we don't talk about our problems. It was that generation, right? We don't talk about our problems. Mm. If you have issues, don't tell me about it. Just go fix it, right? And, and you know, a lot of people, you know, like the baby, the baby boomers, right? They're, they're, they're the, that's the old school approach, right? I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. It makes me uncomfortable. Don't tell me about suicide. Don't talk about addiction. So, yeah, I mean, now we are, we're better, we're, 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 we're evolving, right? So we're, we're doing things a little bit differently now, which is great because, yeah, when I saw, when I was sitting in jail after I had been to treatment, all I knew was I, I had my wife, I would talk, call my wife on the jail phone, you know, once every couple of days and I would get about three or four minutes to talk to her. And all I needed to hear from her was that she was still with me. whether or not she believed that at the time. I don't know, but she told me that she wasn't going to leave me. And that's all I needed because if I didn't have that, if I was sitting in jail staring at walls, 
and uncertain about my future and knowing that my wife and son were going to be gone and I didn't have them anymore, I'd have been done. I, w- I wouldn't have had any hope at all. So having yeah. that, like she may have been just saying it because she wanted to, to, to believe it. But at the time she's sorting through years and years of lies and carnage and, 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 and destruction. But she told me she would stick with me and she did. And so what happens to the addict is we're so, we have become so isolated and we're so fragile in those early days of our recovery that we need somebody around us. We need people around us just to tell us, just to, to instill some positivity in us and, and, and for us to know that, hey, they're still with, they believe in, because that's what it is. Early recovery is all about belief and thinking you can do something, thinking that you can, you can turn your life around. And if you have nothing, if you have no friends, if you have no family members, if you have nobody that's on your side, that's difficult. I don't know if I could have done it. You know, I only had, I mean, I had a few people that were on my side, not many, but enough to, to, to give me hope that things could get better. And, And in the last seven and a half years, a lot of the people that I had alienated and had gone away have come back into my life. Right. And so it's, not that I needed that, but it's just that's kind of what happens if you if you do things right and you and you start to do things in a way that's helping people instead of taking from people like I did for so many years. Yeah. So Patrick, you just touched on it a little bit, but um, sitting here today, you're seven years sounds like maybe a little more than seven years now free of your gambling addiction, which is just incredible. I want to ask, how can we? And I know you're doing things like speaking to uh, student athletes and stuff, but how can we give others hope, right? That entering a rehabilitation facility will allow them to reestablish their lives, no matter how bad it seems. Well, it's, it's, yeah. And that's another thing too. Going into treatment, I had no idea why I had done the things I had done. I, I made, made all of these choices that were counter to what I was taught growing up. They were, they were, I had done things. I was convinced that I was a bad person. So what I learned by going into treatment was I learned about the brain of a gambling addict, for one. Just because we're making these choices doesn't make us bad people. We're sick. And so understanding addiction, which is what I was able to do when I went to treatment, understanding what it was, recognizing what addiction is in the brain and the the, the dopamine, the process and how how all of that works was enough for me to, to, to walk out of there with a belief in myself that I could live a life, a good, clean life. As long as I recognize what addiction was. And then also to the tools I was, I learned, they gave me some mental tools to process because it's not like I just went to treatment and I was fixed. You know, I still have these gambling urges and behaviors that were built up over so many years of gambling. But by going to treatment and seeking help, you're able to, to, to gain some mental tools to handle those addictions or I mean, those urges. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all of the possible pitfalls and roadblocks that are going to, you're going to encounter as you work through the early days of your recovery. So it's, and, it, and it's, there are many different resources too. And, and, and there, there are meetings, you know, there are, there are, are people that you can talk to on a regular basis. I, I started going to therapy after I left treatment and I still go to this day and I'll probably go for the rest of my life because it helps me talk through things. Not necessarily that I'm going to go out and start gambling again, but you know, there are still things that come up because of the choices I made, you know, and it's things like that. I always made, I made the decision early on to stay engaged with my recovery and I never wanted to be too far removed from the past to where I couldn't see it. If that makes sense. I never wanted to get over my skis and think, well, I've got this, you know, I'm fixed. Yeah. So as long as I stay in that in that mindset and continue to engage, and I think that's in large part why I do what I do now is because it helps to keep me engaged with the recovery community 
Yeah. And it, so it's, it's, it helps them, but it also helps me too. Yeah, no, it's incredible what you're doing. And, and again, even coming on our show today to, to share your story and your experiences, we, we can't thank you enough. Um, we do have one kind of final wrap up question for you, Patrick. So obviously the name of our show is the retirement success in Maine podcast. So we like to ask all of our guests, um, how are you going to find your personal retirement success when you get to that point? <laughs> I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, for me, it's, it's, you know, I had to kind of, uh, readjust and, and, and rethink some of, you know, as I, as I left college, you know, I had, I had the, the, everything in my head while well, I'm going to retire when I'm 60 years old and I'll have this much in the bank. And, 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 you know, so now it's, it's, it's totally different. Right. So I've spent the last seven and a half years paying off hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And so for me, it's about, I want to be able to retire at a certain point where my wife and I are still able to travel and, st- and still have our health, mm. God willing. And our kids are healthy and we're able to put our kids through, through, through good schools and we can live a comfortable life after, after we turn 60, you know? And so it's, it's, you know, I, I don't have as much time left as I did before, but really that's it for me. It's about making sure our kids are taken care of, can go to the schools they want to go to. And my wife and I can, can live a good life and travel um, comfortably in good health, you know, while we still can. Yeah. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on our show today. And again, I know that's a, you have a, you just have an incredible story of, of kind of perseverance and persistence. And again, I know obviously a lot of, a lot of just working through addiction, but also highlighting that, taking that big giant stage spotlight and put it on your story so that I think there's lessons that uh, I think even if it's just, Hey, here's somebody I saw that has an addiction um, to anything, being able to, to kind of spot and, and, and say, Hey, you just want to grab a coffee, right? Can we just go sit down? Can I just, can we just talk, right? But just being a person in their corner and not have to go, well, let's, let's uh, talk about your problems and all the things about you doing is talking about advocacy and just being a friend, being a, a neighbor, being a, a family member, right? Just, you know, showing love, right? Is yeah. I guess the, the, the good part of here. And I, I think all these things that you gave us today are really great tools things to have in our toolbox and when we spot these things with our with our loved ones we can we we can have better conversations right we can we can better help people so your story um i i hope it resonates for the people that are listening out here uh but also from a from a being able to take take the things and take your story and be able to turn it into exponentially amount more positive uh that's out in this world so Thank you so much for coming on our show. We really enjoyed having you and um, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. You guys really appreciate the opportunity. Take right. care. Take care. Thanks, Patrick. So our conversation today with Patrick Chester, identifying and overcoming a gambling addiction. Boy, a lot of similarities, I thought, between Barbara Legere and her son's, yeah. um, son's uh, addiction issues, of course, chemical uh, versus gambling, which is maybe more on the mental side here mm-hmm. but um but again i think obviously we're dealing with a brain in both ends right yeah I think absolutely that's, that's that's the big part and you know i i could see where you know to the point of stories not adding up and you have people in your life that are identifying things that are not adding up but you know our role as financial advisors for example right is yeah. hey people call up and say i need fifty thousand for this yeah okay it's your money right do sure. whatever you want 
but warning signs of, hey, just don't tell my spouse or, oh, it's for this renovation. Like, oh, well, geez, you told me about that. I thought you already did it. He goes, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you can see where there's some storytelling and some things that happen. And in, in, as I think Patrick was saying with yeah. his wife, yeah. she's in that cocoon of trust, right? Is, sure. You know, that it might might be too close for her to see. So I could see where, again, from from this end, again, Maine, there's there's things that are coming uh, from an availability perspective to gambling. Yeah. So, Curtis, I think you as you and I were going through and looking at ideas for our show. What maybe not what are issue what are issues today, but what are potential issues down the road? Sure. And things that we might be working with, and I I think that's why we we reached out to somebody that. Um, you know, probably no better expert than somebody that's been through it themselves yeah. Uh, yeah. there. So again, I, that, those were a lot of the things I, I came away with, but uh, again, a lot of, I think some similar threads to what we talked to Barbara about there. Yeah, I agree, Ben. And and I'll add to, you know, I know we, a lot of our conversation was obviously Patrick's story and, and again, incredible for him to kind of go through that in very much detail with us. Um, but I think a big piece we talked about is obviously kind of identifying, again, whether it's yourself or I think we focused more on someone around you um, who you love, whether it's a friend, a family member, a spouse um, who, who you may think is is going down a road of problem gambling. And um, I know for our listeners in the state of Maine, um, the state does have some resources. So um, at any time, you can call 211 in the state of Maine. It's a confidential helpline that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, again, that's just 211. Um, and they also have a website, um, which we'll link in our show notes, um, really just provides resources to kind of different types of gambling, um, how to help someone, how to identify the gambling, how to spot the signs, um, and really any other resources. So we'll make sure to have that in our show notes. Um, so to find that link in detail, um, so obviously we were episode 77 today. Mm -hmm. So you're going to go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash seven seven for episode 77 so again you'll find a, a a link to our show you'll find the transcript uh, link to the youtube video for those who might want to watch it um but again we'll have the link here to this uh the problem gambling uh state of main services there but we as always thank you all for tuning in and and we hope to catch you next time <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.